welcome to Silicon Valley Founder Secrets. My name is Christina Ju Weaver. And my name is Mahamanyan Kamau. Our guest today is Brian Joseph. He is the founder of Bedrock and was on the funding team of Progressity, which was acquired by Box in 2017. He was also a professional soccer player and is super committed to community development. Welcome, Brian. Hey, it's been a while since we met at Planet Home. I was really inspired by our conversation and it got me curious about what you do. Could you share with our audience a little bit about what you're currently working on? Sure. So my primary focus these days is a company I started after Progressly in 2017. It's called Bedrock. Uh, we started out building sort of a private, secure database for high net worth individuals, people who have pretty complex uh, assets and obligations. And the idea was that we would suck all that data into this kind of on-site uh, device that they only they controlled, uh, and they could sort of, you know, you know, master the complexity of their world and just feel feel kind of like more in control of the uh, the digital chaos that seems to be affecting them and all of us uh, for that matter. Um, and then two other projects that I sort of had in the hopper, uh, which I'm focusing less on these days. Uh, one is strength and diversity. That was a a uh, community living situation in East Palo Alto. Uh, it's mixed income, mixed race, uh, and what made it kind of distinctive um, was the fact that it was in East Palo Alto. So for people who don't know or aren't from Silicon Valley, East Palo Alto is, a, is an awesome uh, kind of postage stamp size city that's wedged between uh, Facebook headquarters uh, on one side and then uh, Palo Alto and Atherton on the other side. Uh, you know, so it's kind of wedged between like, you know, the, the powers that be in tech and tremendous wealth. And yet the community itself is kind of socioeconomically challenged and, and has been for a long time for a lot of kind of like systemic reasons. Um, and it's also definitely majority minority. Um, so yeah, so that, that was a, a pretty wild experiment. Um, it's still kind of chugging along, but, but I actually don't live there anymore. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of learnings we can get into later from that. And then the other thing uh, what related to that was we actually built some technology products. Um, and the idea was to sort of like work with um, people from that community to kind of find problems and identify solutions uh, sort of rather than the, what seemed to be the typical model in East Palo Alto, which was sort of like outside uh, forces with with great intentions and you know uh, and, and 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 you know noble intentions and, and good hearts, they would kind of come into the community and sort of impose solutions. Um, so we built this thing. We were calling it kind of LinkedIn for the hood. It was originally called Ambition Spotlight. Um, I like the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the 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 initial premise was 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 awesome. It was this. The idea is that like there are a lot of people out there who, you know. Basically, because they just didn't win the you know the, the 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 lottery of like where you're born, you know they're born into communities where there's maybe less resources, less opportunity, and yet a lot of these people are just as vibrant, just as hungry, just as motivated, just as talented um, as people from other more privileged locales. And but there was no real way for them to sort of like let the world know that they were you know that they had this kind of like hidden genius. Um, and so we were trying to build this platform for people. Um, to talk about their accomplishments and their ambitions and what they're trying to achieve um, so that they could sort of like lever themselves up into like kind of where the real players were playing. And, and in Silicon Valley, that dichotomy is, is kind of in your face all the time. Like when you grew up in East Palo Alto, people are commuting, you know, the streams of Teslas are commuting right by your front door down University Ave every day. And that's kind of rubbed in your face that like there's tremendous privilege out there. And yet like for reasons that are kind of outside your control, you can't participate. So we were trying to like, we were trying to like fix that, that problem, except 
using technology products, which was which was a little different than the kind of traditional approach, which was kind of very nonprofit heavy. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a brief overview of the stuff that I've been working on for the last five or six years. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing with us. Sure. I think, uh, you know, I really admire you what you do of, um, you know, basically want to share the benefit of Silicon Valley with some of the uh, underprivileged, you know, uh, maybe kids or, you know, some of the entrepreneurs. Um, I'm truly actually curious about, do you mind share with us a little bit about yourself and uh, your family, how they inspire you to be an entrepreneur today? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I was super, super lucky. I'll just start with that. <laughs> so <laughs> one, I grew up in Southern California in Santa Barbara, which is just the most beautiful place. Maybe I'm biased, but it is so, I love Santa Barbara. It's uh, a coastal community. It has its own little coastal mountain range, which is um, geologically very rare in the world, uh, you know, to have mountains right next to the coast. And it's got great people. Um, and my family was, was awesome. I was really lucky to grow up with um, loving parents who who super smart, super big-hearted, um, and they're both doctors. Uh, and you know, the funny thing is that you know, everybody always asks me, like, okay, did you want to be? Did you want to yeah. be a physician when you were growing up? Yes. And, <laughs> and you were asking me that when we were eating snacks earlier. Yes. Uh, and I, absolutely not. No. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of what pushed me to go into entrepreneurship. Actually, is because I saw um, my parents who who are really good at their work and they love their work, um, but I also saw them. Um, sort of, sort of, I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but sort of like ground down by the kind of the, the, the machine that is the American healthcare system. You know, they, they were kind of the red tapes. <laughs> yeah. The red tape, but, but also just this like environment where you're not able to like, they just wanted to give care to people, right? They just want to see patients, help them with their problems and, 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 and you know, make them healthy. And yet, you know, because of systems that were kind of outside their control, they were not able to do that. And and for me, entrepreneurship always seemed like a way out of that. I didn't want to be locked in the way that they were. Um, and, you know, entrepreneurship is, is, yeah, it's about disruption. It's about building new things and kind of tearing down old systems in favor of new things. And, you know, I think Silicon Valley is kind of having some moment of reckoning these days about that sort of wanton destruction of old traditions and whatnot. <laughs> and we can talk about that later. But like, yes. uh -huh. but for me as an individual, you know, entrepreneurship definitely felt like a way out of that. You know, I could sort of like, you know, carve out my own destiny and like, you know, work for myself and all these things. And, and I think later in this show, we'll talk about, it. it's not all lovely like that, right? You know, working for yourself has its own set of problems. Um, and, you know, there are times now I think where I sort of, sometimes I think in my, in dark moments, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should be a doctor. Yeah, exactly. But don't worry. At this point in the game, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very committed. Uh, very committed. Yeah, so. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing with us. And uh, um, I, w I was wondering, what what is your superpower, if you consider, and yeah. uh, how is that related to the work you do and uh, as you as a person? Yeah. Okay. Superpowers are interesting. I think one thing that uh, I've noticed um, is that, you know, sometimes great powers mean that you are... are uh, perhaps missing some pieces in other domains. You know, there's some people who are super balanced, but they may not have like a distinct superpower. And uh, for better or for worse, I think I'm on the unbalanced <laughs> end of the spectrum. So so I'm very, very good at a few things. And then other things I, I really struggle with. Um, and so my superpower, I would say, is uh, on two dimensions. One is kind of on the people side. I, I love 
just connecting with other people. Um, I love like listening to their stories and getting to know them and like just vibing with them on like a really deep, I just want to feel like what other people feel. Like I just, I want to just touch people's hands. I'm, <laughs> I'm holding Muhammad's hand right now. Yeah. <laughs> and people don't do that. We don't, we don't like, you know, think about it. We don't cross, we don't cross paths in a deep way with people often. Yeah. And I, I, I think I'm really good at that and I really enjoy it. So that's, that's my first superpower. Mm -hmm. And then in entrepreneurship, what that translates into is like deep customer empathy and in turn kind of product leadership abilities. So, so I'm really good at kind of like thinking strategically um, about, you know, what we should build and why we should build it, how it maps to like a real need, and then very good at kind of like mobilizing a team around that vision. Provide a solution. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that's the thing is like, luckily I'm good at getting teams mobilized because I am not, you know, speaking of the, the, the dark side of superpowers, I am not good at doing it myself. I'm, I'm operationally, I have a lot of challenges. Um, I actually started out as an engineer, uh, you know, right out of college, sort of. Um, but I'm, you know, that's just not, I'm not, I can't sit there and just, you know, do good work um, as an engineer. It's, it's like, it's very hard for me to sit and focus. So, yeah. What, what you're saying reminds me of the discussion that we had. And if I remember correctly, you've yeah. grown up, your family has raised a few kids from different places. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. So, uh so that's yeah I guess I didn't mention that my family section here that's my bad so we um yeah my parents are super cool so when I was 12 uh there were two kids from Ghana who uh they were part of a, a soccer academy uh out in Ghana and basically the idea was that like you know for kids from that academy who were kind of good enough and showed you know enough aptitude they would sort of spit them out and send them to these boarding schools all over the world <laughs> and so two of these guys kind of showed up tumbled into Santa Barbara and somebody's like, okay, they need, we need somewhere this, for these people to stay and like whatever. My parents are like, oh yeah, they're, bring them to the family. We're, they're in, you know? And uh, so, yeah, so I, I grew up with, uh, with them. So Nana and Fifi, Fifi just got married a couple months ago. Uh, and yeah, and, and that was really eye-opening in a lot of respects. Um, obviously, you know, some privileged little shit who grew up in California and suddenly you got these kids rolling in who grew up on the streets of Accra. Um, but it went both ways too, right? So, you know, I, I think that was what was so powerful about that is that, you know, we, we were both, we both benefited tremendously from that relationship. Um, and yeah, maybe later we can talk about how that relates to entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, that was, that was particularly formative for me. Interesting. Just, I'm actually very curious because you mentioned sure. Ghana and I'm from Ghana, yeah. so I, I am biased. Yeah. So why don't you just tell us at this point how that dynamic played into how you grew up mm -hmm. and how that impacts that superpower, which is the people uh, connectivity portion of it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Um, well, so one thing about, you know, being sort of just jettisoned from your, you, these kids, they grew up in Ghana a hundred percent, you know, they had never left Accra basically. And, uh, you know, you land in Santa Barbara, which is a land of just tremendous privilege and wealth and, and just radically, you know, they rolled into our house the first day and we had, we had like golden labs, uh, we had labs, dogs, and they were terrified. They were like, not, they were crawling up the wall. They're like, get these dogs, like what, you know, because in, in Ghana, do you know, dogs mostly are wild. Yeah, they're going to, you know, bite you without even thinking twice. And, you know, our dogs were just like drooling all over the place. Couldn't, you couldn't wait to just lick these guys. But, uh, so yeah, culture clash was real for sure. Um, and, but it was deeper, right? We lived together. You know, they're, they're my brothers. We, we lived together every day. We kind of went through like adolescence together. We'd navigate those challenges together. And so to like do that with somebody who's super, super different than you um, is, 
it gives you kind of like a, a set of tools for navigating difference. And I, I think that's what was, I mean, that, for one thing, strength and diversity, that house that I started, that, that was the, the main mission basically. It was like smush people together who are super, super different and to some degree force them to just figure it out. And, you know, maybe we can get into this later, but like, it's not all kumbaya. You know, there, were, <laughs> there were significant problems in the strength and diversity house. There were, luckily, there were not significant problems with, with my brothers at our house. But yeah, there were definitely like things that had to be navigated that like, somebody who's growing or who was just in a more homogenous environment would not have had to navigate. And I, I think like, you know, yeah. I mean, if we want to bring this back to building products, like to some degree products are about like imagining some new thing um, that transforms somebody's behavior, uh, you know, in whatever context they're already in. And that takes like tremendous empathy. Um, and so, you know, I, yeah, I think, you know, growing up with Nana and Fifi was, was, was really important for me. Um, to like approach things with an open mind, like be very kind of like, like accepting too of, of just different approaches. Cause like, it's fascinating how channelized we get in our behaviors, you know, just cause we grow up in a family, like certain behaviors are expected of us. We see it from our parents and like it becomes normal, yeah. but the range of actual things that you could do is so much bigger than that. And we forget that, right? Like even little things like how do you manage a laundry machine? You know, people have totally different ways of doing that and none of them are right or wrong necessarily. And well, I love I love your story because I actually on the other end, yeah. I was an international student and I got thrown into American family, and uh, you know get to learn I, I have to take American history, you know, uh, uh, learn about the political system. So I asked them some of the questions, and you know, growing up China, the political system is very different in the culture. I mean, I remember I didn't know how to operate a laundry machine, put the quarters into the yeah. into the salt. So. It's very, um, it's a culture shock, but I learned a lot. And then they also benefit from, you know, my perspective. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. My, my dream, if I was elected dictator of, of <laughs> let's just say the United States, keep my ambitions. If I was elected dictator of the United States tomorrow, I think one of the first things I would say, I would dictate is I want to like, I don't know, we pay for this, but I would say we're going to like somehow get it so that everybody in the United States has to go like fly to some totally different place and like sit down and like live in somebody's house <laughs> for a week. Culture shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody should have this little dose of culture shock. Um, and just like go like have dinner with somebody, you know, in the, I don't know, South Dakota or whatever, and just learn about their perspective. What do they deal with every day? What do they care about? What are their hopes and dreams? And like that just, yeah. What are their struggles? And, and, you know, there's a lot of commonality. Like we are, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and yeah, and, yeah, and like, yeah, when you get down to it, like, there's some some essential things there that we share, but to some degree, there's a lot of difference too, and and I think it's really important to like rub your face in that a little bit. <laughs> so. so basically, that's what I do. Like, you know, now I'm doing some of the uh, between China and U.S. I help connect and help negotiate, and I see uh, there's a lot of tension between the two, you know, culture or you know uh, differences. Let's yeah. say. I think it's actually my experience helped me tremendously to have empathy, to understand all the culture, where they, how they look at things. And at the end of the day, we all want to pursue the same thing. We want success. We want the happiness. You know. So, um, thank you for sharing that. It's very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for being, you know, on the front lines of that. Um, I think, you know, speaking as American, like, yeah, it's to me, it's kind of sad to see us as a country sort of trending towards more isolationist behavior and more nationalist behavior. And I love my country. I love, I mean, like, God, we, you know, we've built this thing for the last 200 whatever years and like through blood and bone. And, uh, you know, that's not to be sniffed at, but like, I do not want us to, to retreat from the world. And so I'm really happy that people like you are kind of helping us, you know, connect with especially places like China when we're not always in the friendliest relationships. And 
uh, yeah, I, I, I read this fascinating book uh, called, God, I can't even remember what it was called, um, uh, The War on Terror. It was from a journalist who was writing for uh, The Independent, a publication in London. And he was on the front lines, um, I think from 2003, basically when we rolled in Iraq. And it's this huge book that he drew from his journal entries. Um, and it, and the, the, it's just like heartbreaking story after story. But after I read it, I t- sort of took a step back. And the thing that struck me most actually was that we, we rolled into the Middle East with like zero understanding of this place. And like we had to like, you know, nobody spoke Arabic. It was crazy. There was like eight people or whatever in like the, op, you know, the, the, in, in like the entire, you know, bureau or whatever that spoke Arabic. And um, I, that's, I, I made that statistic up. But anyway, it was some small number. But the point is like we were, we, told, we had no idea what we were getting into. And it's because we just didn't understand this, whole, you know, whole swath of the world that, um, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So you've talked about growing up in Santa Barbara and you've talked about some of the progress that you've done and what inspired you in the entrepreneurship realm. What have, what types of mentors have you had and what role have they played in your success today? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, my soccer coaches were, were probably one of the bigger influences on me growing up. Um, you know, just having that structure and that discipline and, and like, you know, having to kind of like answer to somebody who, uh, you know, knew a lot more than me about the game, uh, was important. Cause I was, I was, to be honest, I was kind of a precocious, annoying little shit growing up, you know, it's like, <laughs> like too smart for my own good. And like, I didn't really like, you know, listen to authority. I was in the principal's office probably every other day in elementary school, you know, oh my just goodness. not for like bad things, just being just a knucklehead, you know? And, like, and so like, and like, that's cool, but it's also a problem. And, and I think soccer was really important to me um, to kind of like learn how to like operate in a system, you know? And, and sometimes like it is, yes, it's important to, you know, preserve your independence and your freedom and your kind of critical thinking. But like, sometimes it is important to like, listen to orders, listen to authority. <laughs> yeah. And like do what you need to do. Cause the team needs that to win. Um, and, and then on the business side, I mean, that's actually been one of my mistakes. I, I actually haven't had that many mentors in the business side. I think that would have saved me like a lot of problems, cost and, 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 and suffering. Um, but there, but there has been one, um, he, he's a very private guy, so I won't, I, I don't want to like talk too much about like who he is, but he has been super, super helpful in, helping me navigate kind of my own, <clears throat> my approach to doing all these things. Because, so it, I, I love what you guys are doing. You guys want to talk about impact and entre- entrepreneurship. And, but I will say that like, that's very difficult to do. To some degree, it's almost easier just to go build products to make money and like not even give a hoot in hell about like the, the positive good side. Um, and I'll tell you what, it's difficult to build products that are good for the world too and make money. Um, you know, one thing that we can, you know, speaking about current markets is like everybody's kind of talking about privacy products and like, you know, data control and whatever. And that's all well and good. And I, and I, I love that. Um, a lot of very smart, well-intentioned people working on that. But those, I'm not, in my honest opinion, I don't think those products are going to do very well. Um, it's, it's kind of like trying to sell spinach to people, you know, they're like, look, spinach is so good for you. Come on, let me just tell you, and you can just mix it in this dish. And yeah, you got to put a lot of salt and oil in there to make it taste good, but please just buy the spinach, you know, mm-hmm. people are like, okay, I guess, you know, I'll buy the spinach. So, so products that are kind of social good products are often like that, I think. Um, and so that my mentor has been very, very helpful in 
forcing me to look critically at, at like whether or not I'm being effective in these circles. Because I think I sort of jumped into a lot of these kind of social good entrepreneurship things with, yeah, very good intentions, like a lot of people today. And, and as people should be jumping into this, I'm not trying to discourage people, but, you know, it, it kind of ate me up, chewed me up and spit me out a little bit, you know, and I had some failures in that front too. Like I would say like, yeah, bang, bang, like has not <laughs> become what it should be. We didn't really mention what that was, but basically it was like a, a platform to help nonprofits and like activists, like, easily generate like forms. It was kind of like a no code solution for activists. It was like, okay, we need to generate some form for people to like submit to like, I don't know, to send a survey to the Congress people or like, uh, you know, attend an event or whatever. So we wanted to give the solution to nonprofits so they could better mobilize people. Um, you know, pretty clearly a social good product. But the thing was, it just like didn't work that well, you know, and like nonprofits couldn't pay for it because they didn't have the money. And like, it was unclear whether or not like the people that even wanted to do the hard things the nonprofits were asking them to do. So it was like, okay, product wasn't really a solution here. It was just that people are lazy. You know, that's the problem. And like, you can't really solve that to some degree. So, so anyway, he, my mentor was very, very helpful in like forcing me to look at all that stuff critically instead of just like continuing to run against the wall, which is kind of what I was doing. He was like, look, you need to like take a step back from this and think about like, you know, whether or not this is even useful to anybody. Because yes, it is good for, you know, society, but like, you know, you are running yourself down and you're wasting a lot of money and time. And like, so take a step back and think critically. Yeah. So um, let's go back to the uh, project you're currently working on. How yeah. do you expect your project with Bedrock benefit others? Huh, so after, <laughs> after I just talked yes, about it. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Going against the wall. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, what impact, you know, you're already having? Yeah, so, so, well, with Bedrock, it is the product of that kind of tough lesson where, like, oftentimes just because you believe in something a ton and you think it's good for people, you know, doesn't mean that you can build a business around it. And, and Bedrock is sort of like the distilled essence of that learning because basically, if you, if you remember when I described what it is, we were building a database, kind of an on-site solution for high net worth individuals, super rich people, right? And most people, when they first, you know, just random people on the street will ask me, what are you doing? I'm like, oh yeah, we built these databases, right? It's like, what the, what the hell? You're building stuff for super rich people. Like we should eat the, you know, what, you know, people, <laughs> people are not thrilled about it. Yes. I, I remember one time I, 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 instead of saying super rich people, I said people with very complex lives. No, I said, I just said people with very complex lives. And, and the woman was like, oh, like, like who? And I was like, oh, like really rich people. And she was silent for a sec. I and have complex lives yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. She's like, <laughs> You're telling me that like teachers in inner cities don't have complex lives? I was like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. <laughs> what I mean is people who have 50 properties and there's like literally 10,000 documents crossing their desk every every couple months. So, so, but the point is with Bedrock, I mean, we're trying to build this underlying technology where people can actually own their data. And and, but the interesting thing is we're not selling it as that, right? We're not going to the world and saying, listen up, world, like. Facebook and all these people, like the reason why they're having, you know, problematic influences on society is because they can access all your data and they can exploit you. And like, therefore, we have these downstream social problems like that. Just that's not it's that's not a product. And that's not what people want to hear. They don't you know, maybe they care morally and, and principally, but like they're not going to care with their wallet, you know, and they're not going to care at scale. And those are the, you know, caring at scale and selling products at scale is what really moves the needle in terms of like people's behavior. So, yeah, we're using this early market to build out. Um, a product that, that I believe is super important for philosophical reasons. People should, you know, have more control over their data. But at the end of the day, the product's about, like, you know, being able to file your taxes better, you know, being able to, like, manage document flow better, being able to, you know, just generally, like, 
it's kind of a security product that people want. They buy it because they, they want the on-site server because, you know, they don't want their stuff in third-party servers. Um, yeah. Great. That's great. Yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's interesting. And perhaps with your natural inclination towards doing social good, you would have a bedrock light in the future that would yeah, yeah. help different people do different. Exactly. I didn't make that clear. The whole point was to build, that we're using this to build out the underlying technology and then we'll go down market. And then the idea is that like the ecosystem will provide enough value yeah. at that point that people won't even need to buy it for the privacy stuff. They're going to buy it because it does something cool. Um, I, I actually looked, not that we're a car company and not that we're even close to Tesla's level of you know studliness, but Tesla was kind of an early inspiration because they, whether or not this was strategic and deliberate on their part, I don't know. But if you look at it at a high level, they basically started out with a similar insight. They're like, look, climate change is a huge problem and like electrifying transport is a necessary step. But nobody's going to buy those little doofy electric things that sound like vacuum cleaners, you know, back in the day, right? Those little things. So we're going to build this super awesome, sexy car. It's going to be fast. It's going to be cool. And people are going to buy it because of that. And oh, yeah, you can save the environment, too, and, like, signal that you're, like, an environment-loving person. Oh, yeah, that's a great side benefit, right? And so, and it was up market. Their first car was, you know, $100,000 plus. So, so it's very similar in some respects to what we're doing. I heard the concept of double bottom line. Oh, yes, yeah. 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 Or triple yes. bottom line. <laughs> people, planet, and profit. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. In terms of uh, your experience through all the startups that you've been a part of. Yeah. There are many new entrepreneurs who are just getting their feet wet uh, or, or are looking to get into a new venture. Yeah. What general advice will you give to people who are in the game, have started, but maybe they are stuck somewhere or they're feeling discouraged? Yeah. Yeah. First advice is don't listen to general advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so in, in that vein, I think where does it begin? I mean, well, one... One place, yeah, okay, so if you're not going to listen to general advice, what are you going to listen to? Well, one way to think, you know, critically and strategically about what your next step is going to be if you're going to start stuff is to, like, get your pieces on the table and look at where you're strong and look at where you're weak. And uh, there's actually, I, I think it's uh, Leo Polovets, I think it was Sousa Ventures, I can't really remember, but he has this interesting framework. It's a little too quantitative for my liking, but I don't know, the engineers in the audience may like it. It's, uh, he calls it, I think, de-risking. So he has this, like, Thing is like, okay, here are all the dimensions, you know, here's some spreadsheet on the left column, put all your dimensions, right? Like, uh, you know, your, your technical abilities, how much capital do you have, uh, market experience, um, you know, whatever, all these things that kind of go into creating a successful company. And then, he, on, you know, on the, on the columns to the right, you basically is like, you need to like evaluate honestly, like where you're at with each of those things. And then what you need to do is basically say, okay, which things like, are you most able to move the needle on now today? Right? Like maybe cap, maybe you're speaking of an international audience. Maybe you're like trying to start something in Ghana and like access to capital, you know, there's just not billions of dollars floating around in venture capital in Ghana, right? Not yet. Someday soon, hopefully. So, so that column, you basically say like, look, that's just not going to be one, you know, I got it. That's, that's a black hole for me right now. So what other things can I control? Maybe it's on the sales side or maybe it's on the industry experience side. Maybe like I have a friend who's from Nigeria and she was working for, I think it was Shell out there and just has this really deep domain expertise in like oil and gas in West Africa. Like that is a super valuable thing. And, and so she should, you know, really lean into that. So my, so my advice would be to somebody who's doing that is like, 
yes, you may be in total love with your idea. You may be you know, staying up till 6 a.m. every day just like manically thinking about it and believing that you have the next big thing. And your mother may tell you it's awesome. But like you need to take a step back and a deep breath and put your cards on the table and say, where do I actually stand and which things can I actually fix today and which things are not realistic? And that will give you kind of like a new path about you know what you need to address and when you need to address it. Um, yeah, from your um, experience, uh, I was wondering what is the biggest lesson you have learned from the mistakes you have made in your career so far? Or you know? Yeah, yeah, I've made a ton of mistakes, first <laughs> of all. Yeah, so many mistakes, God. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, so <laughs> speaking of like being aware of your weaknesses, um, that was interesting. So I progressively... Uh, yeah, I made the mistake, I think, of like drinking my own Kool-Aid for, for a while. And we all kind of did in the early days. We were very, very good at, speaking of like what our strengths were, our strengths at the time, we were very good at like pitching. We were very good at like getting people excited about stuff. We were very good at team building. Um, you know, we had like an awesome office and people loved to come into work and like the, the music was pumping and, you know, prospective investors would come by and be like, wow, the culture here is just so awesome. Like this, how did you build? This is amazing, you know? And like, yeah, who knew, you know, who cared whether you know, people were excited to come to work and like they didn't know what they were building, <laughs> but but they loved to be there. And so, but at the time it was like very hard to like think critically about that. Um, and I just wish that I, we ended up getting there, but like I wished much sooner I had like somehow like put myself, uh, you know, on the hot seat, whether it was like, this, and this was go back, goes back to having good mentors. Like I wish I had somebody who who like, forced me to be much more critical about like where we were at and like what our problems were at the time. Cause it, it was so easy to gloss over it because like we were doing well in other respects. Um, so honesty, I guess was, was one of the biggest things I honesty I, and, and like, not even like in a lying sense, but just in almost like being, being honest with yourself and your team about like where you guys are actually at. Um, cause it was so easy to kind of like spin stories and like get lo lost in the hype. Um, that it, that it was that we lost sight of the thing that really mattered, which was building a product that people want and will pay money for. Yeah, so that, that's just one of many, many mistakes. <laughs> so you're saying that there's a tendency to get so carried away by the idea that you're not looking at how well the idea is actually forming or coming yeah. along. Or, or, or whatever it is that you, you are getting carried away with, you need to find disconfirming evidence, right? So in decision-making science or whatever they call it, there's this idea of, you know, find disconfirming evidence. Like, let's say, okay, let's remember early on, I said, oh, yeah, maybe I'm going to go to medical school, you know, because like, it, it's so hard in Silicon Valley. But, you know, there are a lot of, being a doctor is not fun either, right? So like, if, let's say I was like, oh, yeah, I want to go to medical school. The first thing I should do is really poke and prod that, that, that conviction, quote unquote, and I should find evidence, you know, play the devil's advocate for myself. I should say like, well, actually being a doctor is not fun anymore because you don't even see patients. You know, you, you get rushed through 15 minutes with these. Yeah. You spend 80% of your day filling in, you know, EHR systems and it's not that sweet actually. And so, so that's fine. And so with our startup, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I, I we should have been, you know, yeah, publicly you want to project confidence and tell a great story. That's half the battle, right? Reality is distortion or whatever, sort of glorified here in the Valley. Um, but behind closed doors, my God, we should have been ripping ourselves apart. You know, we should have said, wait a second, how many people are actively using this? Uh, that is not, re that's not acceptable. Like, have we talked to these customers and what did they actually say? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. they said it was cool and they love the vision, but like, 
that's not it. <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not what you. That's not enough. Um, yeah, disconfirming evidence. Um, yeah, there's other mistakes. I think. Well, yeah, well, we can get into it more. So. Um, as you're building a company, um, one of the important uh, elements is to keep a healthy work-life balance. Uh, you mentioned about you, you know, play soccer, and then I was just wondering what what advice do you have for founders how they, you know, to try to strike a balance between work and life if they have high level of stress and the imbalance in their life. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so that's another Probably symptom of Silicon Valley another, right now. <laughs> you're right. So this is another zone of mistakes. <laughs> I, and that's why I was saving it. I figured that we would touch on this. So yeah, speaking of like, <laughs> you know, disconfirming evidence, one way to do that actually is to take a step away from your work. And so if you are just grinding your face off, working every day, always in the office, always like always thinking about your problem, always thinking about your company's problems, that's a really that's a really surefire way of like getting stuck into like uh, troughs of thinking, right? And like getting stuck in these things where you don't actually you know, test your assumptions anymore. Um, so like one thing you need to do is just get away, take a step away. And I know that's like not some, for some people it's not an option. Like for me, what I would do is I would fly to Utah. I would get out um, and, and people, and I would. What I do you do out there? I'd just like, just like <laughs> bop around. I would just like in take, Utah. my favorite thing to do, I didn't have a car out there, so I'd just take lift everywhere and like meet these fascinating people who are totally different, right? There's a bunch of Mormons out there and just like, <laughs> you know, just totally different people. And, and nobody was talking about tech. Now they kind of are Silicon Slopes. They, they think they're starting a new Silicon Valley out there. I hope they don't because, you know. <laughs> There are problems with that, um, but but yeah, but but you know, it was different environment, different people, different milieu. You know, you go into a coffee shop, people are talking about totally different things, and and that was critical for me to like find my my way with Bedrock. Um, so taking steps away are super important. Um, you know, on the health and wellness side, this is harder for me to give good advice on. So so yeah, so I, I was you know playing kind of low level professional soccer for a little bit after we sold the company, and so for me like health and like human performance are second nature, you know, like, like it's very, very easy for me to, you know, eat healthily and get into the gym and all that. Cause it's just autumn, you know, I've been doing it for so long. It's, it's become habit. Um, and for me, that's like non-negotiable and, and I don't understand, like, it's interesting. People you build of, into your schedule. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not great with my schedule, but every day, yeah, it'll happen sometime, you know? And, uh, I, like, I think that, you know, after you come away from like I don't know, a, a vigorous run or whatever, some sort of like physical exertion, like the, the level of clarity that you experience and like the, you know, the level of like, I don't know, different emotions that you experience is, is so critical to your work. Like it helps you solve problems better. It helps you just feel happier. It helps you, you know, perform better. I don't understand why people wouldn't include that, but I guess like, you know, to some degree it, it is difficult. So I highly recommend like getting yourself into some system that will force you to do it. And every, people ask me all the time, like, how do you do it? How do you do it? And I, like I said, I, I've been lucky. I grew up with it. So it's, it's second nature, but like one thing that was great about soccer is that there's 30 other people that are showing up to your 6 a.m. workout that are expecting you there. And if you don't show up, it is a big problem, you know, and we don't, most people don't have that type of structure. So I, and that's the secret. I think you should go get, whether it's an, a coach, you know, executive coach or a personal trainer, or if you can't afford that, like find a partner who's you're accountable to accountability buddies, you know, um, get yourself the structure that's going to force you to like treat your body right. Um, cause, cause it has such, I mean, 
I, we don't even need to get into it. This is like common knowledge. Now everybody knows that like treating your body right makes you perform better, you know, in knowledge work. So, yeah. Uh, Brian, I would like to envision this. Uh, let's say today is December 31st, 2021, two years down the road. All your big dreams have come true and a dinner has been held in your honor to celebrate. You're being asked to give a short talk and I will be the MC in that situation. <laughs> okay, um, so you can yank me off when yes. I'm rambling for too long. I like this podcast. <laughs> so what accomplishments uh, will you be celebrating? So two years from now, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what do you envision? Yeah, well, bed, Bedrock, I think at that point, I would love for us to have like a down market product that's more consumer worthy rather than this kind of like weird consulting slash enterprise zone that we're in now. Um, so yeah, so so building like a kind of, a, a, you know, like a, a, a new computing environment that supports sort of, um, we, we have this thing that we say internally, superhuman powers, basic human rights, right? In Silicon Valley, everybody's talking about like AI and all this stuff and like tools for thought and, and you know, what automation. Robots for delivering pizza. Yeah, yeah, well, that too, the, the frivolous as well. Um, but, but the interesting thing is that like, okay, we've given up a lot of like things that I think we value in, in this kind of quest for, for, for uh, whatever it is that we're questing for here, right? And so um, I, I would love to be able to talk about how my product has like, been been put into many people's pockets and homes because it, it's an awesome product and they love it and it enables them to do cool new things. But also that like in so doing, we've we've managed to establish sort of like a new model, digital model, <laughs> where you don't actually have to like kind of expose everything about yourself to these third party entities that maybe don't actually care about your interests as a human being or about the interests of the communities that we're a part of. Um, and like that's the interesting thing. Like I'm not one of these kind of like you know, Jeremiah spewing like anti-big tech people, um, you know, which are seem to be sort of coming out of the woodwork now. And that's important. We need that voice. We need people to be like casting a critical eye on, on these companies. But to some degree, these are large. These companies are beyond any one person now. These are these, these, these organisms, they have a momentum of them, their own. And they're there to like make profit. And like they have these products today that are like ad fueled and data driven. And they're going to keep doing this. And I don't I don't necessarily see a world where they're going to be able to pivot them. So it's like turning an aircraft carrier on a dime, you know, trying to parallel park it. So we need new models, right? And so that's what I would love to speak to in two years is like, here's this new product that people are adopting in droves because it's awesome. And what's amazing about it is that it has a new architecture where we don't actually have to rely on these old models anymore, which have, which have sort of destroyed a lot of things that we hold dear. Um, yes, that's, that's what I'd like to talk about. You mentioned about from enterprise uh, client to mm -hmm. consumer client. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let let I would love for everybody to have this because I, I think everybody does experience the problem we're solving for these rich people. It's like information overload is kind of what it is, um, information overload and information exposure, right? Like, I don't know. Think about like your inboxes today. Maybe you guys are awesome and you're both coaches and you've probably inbox zero. But you know <laughs> me, I don't even have one inbox anymore. I have like fifteen. You know, I've got multiple emails. I've got Slack. I've got LinkedIn. Whatever. I've got messaging. God, I, I, my international friends are on WhatsApp and 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 WeChat. You know, and then. Other friends are on iMessage. It's crazy. It's crazy. And and even on the document side, our Google Drive internally is has thousands of documents in it. And like, it's so it's too much, you know. And and this problem of kind of inf how do we navigate these 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 complex information spaces? How do we navigate our digital world today? You know, it's chaotic. It's dirty and it's dangerous. You know, I want and and yes, the rich people experience that problem 
you know, in a way that they're able to pay for a lot to solve it today. But I think everybody is suffering from that problem. Um, and so that's, yeah, I would love for everybody to have a solution to that problem. I think everybody have a complex life. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Everybody's yes. got a complex Yeah, think about it. Speaking of healthcare earlier, in the United States, what a nightmare it is to like, you'll see people on Twitter all the time, right? Like, I just got out of the emergency room. And my, my leg was broken in half. I was bleeding everywhere. And they handed me a damn clipboard, you know, and they're like, <laughs> fill out these forms, you know, or whatever, right? You hear these, these stories about like how people have to navigate these kind of complex Compliance, digital yeah, yeah, yeah all this stuff i think it's an indignity and it's inhuman you know we should be out there dancing salsa like you guys <laughs> all the time and if you break your ankle we should be able to just roll in the hospital get the health care we need and get right back out uh, salsa got me going man yeah. this is awesome <laughs> yeah so thank you so much for your time sure. uh, as an exit question a brief response <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so imagine that you meet an in uh, aspiring entrepreneur at Starbucks, yeah. okay? Probably somebody from China or Ghana. Yeah. You're in a hurry because you have a meeting coming up in three to five minutes, but you want to give them advice. They are afraid of pursuing a bold idea that they have. Yes. What advice would you give this person? I love this question because this has happened a few times. I've done this with a f somebody, he was from Ghana. Where was he from? I think East Africa somewhere. And I have been that kid too, by the way. When I first showed up in Silicon Valley, I won't say his name, but somebody, well, whatever, if you guys can research it. One of the co-founders of Heroku was sitting there. He's wearing a shirt. I'm like, hey, man, you like Heroku or whatever? He's like, yeah, I founded the company. I was like, <laughs> wow, I pulled up my seat. I'm like, I'm like just arrived here two days ago. Like I'm looking to start companies. And here was his advice. I'll give you that free, and then I'll give you my advice. His advice was don't start a company. Go work in an early-stage startup and see all the problems firsthand and like, and, and look, if it's a rocket ship, awesome. You're going to be successful and it's going to be amazing. You make a shitload of money. And if it's not successful, even better. You're going to learn how not to do it and you're going to dodge all those bullets when you go try and start your own thing. Excellent, excellent advice. Um, but if somebody's like really hankering and chomping at the bit and like maybe they've got a lot of stuff going for them, maybe they're a genius engineer or something or maybe they have access to capital already and, and this is their first go around, my three to five minute advice would be, yeah, it's back to the honesty thing. It's like, go rub your face in disconfirming evidence. And what that means is like, go, so you think you got an idea, go tear it apart. You know, if it's a, the, one of the kids that I met who was from Africa who's super, super smart, physical, uh, not physical, mechanical engineer, um, had, had this idea for this like little like bike blinker thing. And it was cool. He built a prototype in one of these maker labs or whatever. And he wanted to talk to me because, you know, somehow thought I was some successful entrepreneur, you know. And I was like, dude, that sounds cool. I don't think people are going to buy that, though, to be totally honest with you. And look, go prove me wrong. But what you need to go do is you need to go to every bike shop in Palo Alto and San Francisco, and you need to like try and sell it to them right now. And and then you'll know. And the product uh, market fit. Yeah, find product market fit. Or, or, I mean, in this case, it was such a janky prototype, which is great. Don't build the expensive thing. Like, it's like it wasn't even product market fit at that point. It was just like, is this even viable? You oh, know? Okay. And, and, but he was like, at that point, he was trying to raise money and do the whole entrepreneurship song and dance. And, and that, for me, any aspiring entrepreneur, it's like test your assumptions, you know, like rub your face in the disconfirming evidence, as uncomfortable it is, and you'll be on your way. That's Wow. it's amazing. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, gang. This is fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. High five. <laughs> High five all around. <laughs>